How many of us or how many of you grew up with the phrase, and I know the terminology is a little different in different parts of the world or different parts of the country maybe, but the gist of it is the same. You don't get a second chance at making a first impression. I mean, they say it differently in different parts of the world, I guess, but the, the idea is the same. You don't get a second chance to make, I guess, a good first impression. And I think it's a really valid statement because first impressions do matter. But the truth is also that we can easily get caught up in those first impressions or just appearances on the whole. Whether it be our appearance at the workplace, our appearance in front of the church, it, it is easy in today's world to focus on that. It's really easy to focus on that rather than what is inside us. Very often the appearance, actually it's the truth, the appearance of our hearts actually guides our thoughts and directs our actions. But that's easy to overlook in the world we live in because the world makes a big deal about appearances. And again, it's not wrong. Please hear me out. It's not wrong to look good. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's easy to get caught up in that, correct? And I mean, women have to be a little more particular than men, I guess. And I might dig a hole in which I can't get out of. But it's easy for a man to pack two weeks of clothes into, you know, on vacation in one backpack. <laughs> but women need like two suitcases and a, and a carry-on. I mean, you got to have the hairdryer and the, or the straightener or the curler. And of course, the shoes got to match the outfit and the purse got to match everything else. And, and I'm glad Heather's not here, but... My mother-in-law might get me in trouble, but I'm almost sure every man has bragged about how, how he has fit everything into his backpack. True. But the point I'm trying to say is it's easy to get caught up with appearances. And the older I get, the, I realize that it's not just about the older people who get caught up. It's younger people get caught up with this idea of appearances too. It's kind of funny how they want to be different, but they all go into the store and come back looking the same. It's just the truth. Black t-shirt, torn jeans. <laughs> Daniel. It's all the same. Daniel, you hear me, right? It's just, it's just the truth though. It's easy to get caught up. While appearances do matter, the pressure to look right is, 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 to, is just, I think, greater than ever before. But it's okay sometimes. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I mean, if I'm doing yard work, I, I mean, a couple of Saturdays ago, I was doing yard work, and I was wearing torn jeans and a T-shirt, but then I was going to meet a pastor for dinner, and so what do I do? I jump into the shower, I change, and I dress up appropriately with a button-down shirt or whatever to go out. I mean, I don't go to a wedding uh, reception in my holy jeans. You know what I'm talking about. You know, I don't do that. Or smelling like a horse. I don't do that. <laughs> but like I said, as I grow older, I'm more and more convinced that clothing covers the outside, but it never covers the heart. 
It never does. Clothing and makeup fixes the outside, but it does nothing to the inside. And where am I going with this illustration? I think I'm getting this imagery from Paul himself. Because that's what he's getting to in Ephesians chapter 4 as we look at it. And I've titled my sermon this morning, Watching What We Wear. Watching what we wear, but it has nothing to do with physical clothes. Because what Paul is talking about, it's not about the clothes we wear on the outside. It's the clothes we wear on the inside. That's what he's focusing on here. It's not about the external, it's all about the internal. It's not about what you put on your body, it's what you live out. That is really important. What does that look like? Paul says, you put off the old self and put on the new. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read from verses 17 all the way through 24. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from from the life of God because of the ignorance, ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That however is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I think that's a pretty powerful portion of scripture like everything else is but watching where we what we wear is important like i said i don't wear a fancy suit or a tux when i go out to work with the animals i don't do that but what paul is trying to say is put on what is appropriate but inside on your heart the inner person don't get caught up with external images. The inner person is what really matters. And of course, we know the story of Samuel all the way back in 1 Samuel 16. Saul had failed rather miserably as a king. And though he was tall and handsome and stood above everybody else, he was strong on the outside, but he was weak on the inside and the Lord rejected him. And then, of course, he sent Samuel to find and anoint a good king. And the good old Samuel didn't realize uh, 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 he goes to Jesse's house, and guess what he does? He goes looking for the same exact thing that Saul qualified for, the outside, right? The tall and dark and handsome and, you know, outwardly very attractive, all the brothers of David, but he, he, he probably didn't get it till God had to kind of knock, knock him a little. Samuel, listen, 
Men look at the outside, but God looks at what? The heart. God doesn't see what man sees. God sees something totally different. Where man is preoccupied with the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. He doesn't care about the color of your dress. He's caring about the condition of your heart. That's what it's about. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about in this portion of scripture here. Watch out what you wear on the inside. How do you dress your heart? What is your heart attire? I mean, you'll never hear about that on a fashion magazine. I guarantee you that part or any TV show. Paul says we need to put off, have our minds renewed. It's like taking a shower and then putting on. That's the whole idea right here. And of course, it falls in line with the whole context of Ephesians chapter 4 and also the book of Ephesians. Paul says, we know at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, he says what? I urge you, I plead with you for what? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That's exactly what he's building on right here. In the beginning, he said, walking worthy of your calling is to do it with gentleness, humility, patience, with tolerance. And now he's going on to say, hey, as you walk in a worthy way, look out at your heart. Put off the old and put on the new. That's walking worthy of our calling. Live out the life you claim to believe. That's the point. And I think James brings that home all the time. Walk the walk, just don't talk the talk. Renew your minds. Put off the old, renew your minds and put on. I mean, it's just, it's just pretty amazing because if you look at the whole book of, uh, I mean, chapter 4 itself, in the beginning he's talking about, you know, the whole body of Christ and the whole purpose is unity from verse, I mean, all this while. He's talking about unity in the body and now he's looking, focusing on the person. On the, you know, he's shifting from the big picture to the person itself. And I think the whole idea of putting off and putting on is such a beautiful picture of salvation itself. Because salvation is total transformation, church. It is total, total transformation in terms of the, the miracle that God does that transforms a sinner into a saint. That's what salvation is all about. It's the same thing that... You know, Jesus talks about, and he says, you can't enter the kingdom of God. You got to talk about this, think about this radical transformation. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless what? You are born again. That's the same idea that Paul picks up in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, what? He's a new creation. All things have passed away and the new has come. It's the same idea Paul picks up on. Again, when you read chapter 2, again, understand the part. Chapter 1, 2, and 3 gives us the theoretical, theological part. Chapter 4, 5, and 6, like all of Paul's letters, there's this part where he turns from being, you know, theoretical to practical. In chapter 2, he's talked about this. We talked about, you know, you were dead in your transgressions, but now because of God, by His great mercy, we are made alive. There's that change. That's the theoretical part. And he says, how do you live it out now? You live it out practically by putting off and putting on something. It's the same thought he's picking up on. He's just moving from what we know to what we do now. Amen. It's intentional. Because God raised us up and, you know, seated us up, seated 
seated us with him in heavenly praises. And now we go from being, like, lack of another word, uh, roadkill to being God's workmanship. That's the transformation of salvation. And now he says, let your life reflect what God has done for you. Amen. From putting off your old to putting on the new. That's the transformation he's talking about. Church, please understand, the transformation is from God. You cannot do it. You can never earn it. Salvation is all God. But now here's our responsibility. Put off and put on. Put off and put on. And as you keep going through that passage, he actually uses, like I said, three in the Greek, three infinitives. He talks about put off, he talks about renewing, and he talks about putting on. That's the focus right there, those three words. Sorry, I shouldn't get ahead of myself. I've gone to the end of my sermon. But verse 17 Verse 17 says, so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. It's kind of interesting that word that he uses for, for insist right there where he says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Uh, in the Greek, it actually comes from the word where we get martyr. That's the word. It's witness, so it's him saying it, but it's God's witness as he's writing it. It's like God is standing over his shoulder and he's saying, hey, write this, Paul, write this. He's writing this and God is, this is God's witness as he writes this. He insists on it in the Lord that you must no longer live or walk as the Gentiles do. Of course, you've got to understand the word when he's using Gentiles there as most often in Paul's letters, the Gentiles, he's not making the division. Most of the time, it's not between Jew and Gentile. He's talking about saved and the unbelievers. That's the Gentiles. When he uses the word Gentiles, that's what he's talking about most of the time. Those who are our lives with Christ, but our lives before Christ. That's the idea he's bringing up when he talks about Gentiles, the unbelievers, or our life, our former lives. And now he says this, we can't live that way anymore. We can't live. Now that we are in Christ, we don't walk. We don't live as Gentiles walk. We don't live the way we used to live. We aren't characterized by the things that characterize them. I need to say this uh, real quick. And I think it's something we need to understand because I've had people uh, bring this up to me. Because you see this in parts of uh, Paul in chapter 2, but also in, in chapter 4 and several uh, parts in, in Paul's letters where he, his description of unbelievers seems rather extreme. You know, they're dead and, you know, he's using this kind of words and terminology. But the truth is this. He's not trying to say that an unbeliever is a deplorable human being. He's not saying that at all. Please understand that part. Paul is not putting down or looking down on people like that at all. Not everyone is a mass murderer. Not everyone is a serial rapist. Not everyone is, is like this extreme person of evil intent. Not everyone is like that. But the truth is this, every one of us fall into categories like that to some degree or another. It's just the truth. It's a matter of degree, not a matter of nature, because we all have that nature. By nature, we are all capable of extreme evil, but we are restrained because of, you know, whatever, the judicial system or restrained 
because of the fear of being rejected by family or by society are restrained by God himself who has written his law on our hearts, that conscience, you know. But don't for one moment think that you aren't capable of doing what those people have done too. I think we need to remember that and uh, before we look down on people, we are all capable of extreme evil. Verse 17, anyway, he says we can no longer live like that. No longer live in that former state like we did when we were lost. That's the life we lived before we came to the cross. We cannot live like that anymore. We cannot. And of course, Paul gets to the positives, but before he gets to the positive, he kind of, in the next couple of verses, he kind of drills home the negatives. Drills home the negatives in those next few verses. And there are four words I want to focus on, and these are not, uh, not uh, mine uh, but actually from John Stott in his commentary to the, uh, on the book of Ephesians. Four words that he uses from 19 all the way through uh, 20, uh, all the way, yeah, 19 and 20. It says this, sorry, 17 to 19. He uses four words. You can write these down and we'll talk about it. Darkness, deadness, recklessness, and hardness. Those are the four words he uses here. Darkness deadness, recklessness, and hardness. I want to start with hardness here. Hardness we see here in verses 18 and uh, going on to 19. He says, They were darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening, the hardening of their hearts. They, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And the NIV, of course, says they are full of greed. Just the core of depravity is a hard heart. It's a hard heart. And he talks about the hardness of heart. And the word he uses to describe that is actually a, a word that describes a stone that is kind of a rock that is harder than, uh, than marble, but it also had some medicinal purposes. And what they did very often is they used, if there was a broken bone and it was fixed, they used that to wrap that broken joint so that it calloused around it. And that's what he's talking about because that callus goes stronger than the bone and holds that thing together. And that's what it, it, it actually symbolized. But as they used it in everyday terms, it simply meant this. That this person had lost all sensitivity or any kind of feeling at that one point. Hardness of, my, of, of, of the heart. A loss of all power of sensation. It describes something so hard and you can say, you know, that it does not feel anymore. It doesn't just feel anymore. That's why he says in verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, it goes with the hardening of the heart. A hard heart has lost sensitivity to things. Verse 18, it says, they were darkened in their understanding. Kind of got to think about that together. Hard heart, losing sensitivity, no feeling anymore. And now what you have? A hard heart and a darkened mind. That's pretty terrible. That paints a really grim picture. But that's what depravity is all about. Hard hearts and darkened minds. 
And then he says, no longer walk as Gentiles with hard hearts or darkened minds. And he says how? Separated from the life of God. A hard heart and dark mind only exists apart from the knowledge of God. This is not, please, please understand this. This is not a loss of intelligence in, in, in terms of academic intelligence, but a loss of spiritual perception. That's what it's about. Because you can find people who are really, really intelligent and sophisticated in the academic stuff, you know, in academic knowledge. But that same person can be totally, absolutely lost and ign ignorant about spiritual stuff. I mean, I've met people who are really smart. They can run circles around me with all their academic stuff. But they're also totally blank when it comes to things in the spiritual stuff. With the spiritual things. I love what one commentator put it, and he puts it this way. Why are we human beings ignorant? He asked the question. Because part of our, we are ignorant because part of our being is not functioning right. The spiritual part of our beings. The, our spiritual life, the human spirit is blank, darkened, and obscured in our natural state because we are apart from God. Sin causes us to be apart from God. And because we are apart from God, we have a darkened mind and a hard heart. Church, there's a part of us that is blank. Every person, that's the, what, that's the hole we always talk about in every person's soul that only God can fill. There is that thing that is blank, that is ignorant of God when God is not in the picture. The spiritual part of a being that is lost because God is not in the picture. But Paul, and I think it's safe to say that spiritual part of being is still as lost today as it was last back when Paul wrote this too. Today we tend to rest in our progress, brag about our intellectual uh, achievements, you know, our scientific breakthroughs and our advancement in, in uh, you know, we've made with all this technology and everything else, but what has that really done to your spirit? What has that done for us as spiritual beings with all these advances that we brag about so often? Are we really any better than those who came before us when it comes to our spirit? One author put it this way. Do we feel safe on our streets at night? Have we solved the problems of crime, political corruption, racism, immorality, or war? Are we any happier as a society than the ancient Egyptians or the ancient Greeks? If so, why are there so many people going to the psychologist or psych, what do you call it, the psych ward, taking drugs, getting drunk, getting divorced, battering spouses, abusing children, and committing suicide? Why are all these problems rising instead of declining if we really think we're so advanced? Because there's a part of us that only God can fill. And we're not talking about that enough. Great questions. It's because there is a hardness of the heart and a darkness of the mind which leads to the deadness of life. People just walk about 
like dead men walking. How else can you? I mean, hard hearts, dark mind, dead, deadness of life. How else can you explain a man opening fire from a hotel building onto a crowd of people who he has never met? How else can you explain a young teenager taking a gun to school, killing teachers and kids, and often killing themselves? How else can you explain it besides hardened hearts, darkened minds? How else can you explain a young man, a young boy, strapped with an explosive and make him run to the troops, and then detonating when he gets close to them? How do you explain that? Oh, we're so advanced, right? Hardness of our hearts, deadness of our minds, I mean, darkness of our minds and the deadness of our lives. Church, think about it. And we need to challenge people with all the scientific advancements we've had. And we brag about the luxury we enjoy, the conveniences we live with, the entertainment we are surrounded. Why have we no answers to the blankness in every human's heart? And they try and fill it with all kinds of junk that only makes it worse. A hard heart, a darkened mind, a deadened spirit, and that's a description of our old self, church. That's the description of the old clothes, the old garments that Paul says, we got to throw off. We got to throw that off. And before, you know, we all shake our heads in disbelief, remember that that nature is still living in us. We are capable of just as much wickedness same kind of depravity we can easily turn to because we were all born with it. Now, again, we may not raise or rise to that level of depravity, but it's easy for us to step back into the old world, into the old self. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. The bottom of it all It's greed. Me, I, myself. That's it. Full of greed. How else do you describe a world that is just consumed with me? How else do you describe there? An insatiable appetite that drives people deeper and deeper because nothing satisfies. And as they dig themselves deeper and deeper, what do they do? They live a reckless life because hoping the next high will happen when they push it further. That's recklessness. More and more and more and it's still never enough, church. A hardened heart, a darkened mind, a deadened spirit, and reckless life. That's what describes the old self. One commentator, another one puts it this way. Paul portrays a world where hearts are so hardened, they don't even know that they were singing. I'm sorry, that they didn't even know that they were sinning. He saw minds so blinded by sin that shame was lost and decency forgotten. Morals so debauched and hell-bent on satisfying their own depravity or their own depraved desires that they did not care whose life they injured and whose innocence they destroyed as long as in the end their greed was satisfied. That describes the world around us today as well. 
They don't care about whose life is injured and whose innocence is destroyed, how many families are ripped apart as long as they get their own desires met. And it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And please remember, that tendency lives in us as well. You and I have that same nature within us. And then he says, verse 20, but you... NIV says, however, is not that, however, is not the way of life you learn. He drills on what the word looks like, and now he says, uh, it says, but you. It's kind of like he's pointing his finger and jabbing it in your chest, saying, hey, but you, this is not the life you are supposed to live. Because now you have learned Christ. It's not the life, verse 20, it says that, however, is not the life, the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and you were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You, hey, you, you've learned Christ and the idea of being learned Christ is the whole idea of salvation. Now you that have experienced the cross, you cannot live that way. Cannot live that way anymore. Like I said, learn the whole idea. Learn there. He's talking about in referencing salvation. Because now you have come from darkness into life. You have come from death to, I mean, sorry, darkness into the light. You have come from death to life. And you have come from ignorance now into the full knowledge of Christ. Now you know. Now you ought to throw off the old self. You know what it means to be cleansed. Though my sins be like scarlet. You know what it means to have all that filth washed away by the blood of Christ. Now you know and have experienced the forgiveness that comes from the cross. Now you throw off the old self. Don't go running back. Put on. Now that you have been cleansed. Put on the new garments because you got because you got to live and walk a new kind of lifestyle. Now you are different. Now you are saved. You're redeemed, sanctified. That's part of the calling now we are called to do. When you heard, verse 21, when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus and I just want to read it again slowly because this verse really got to me as I was preparing. When you heard about Jesus, can you think back to the time when you heard about Jesus? And were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus Christ. Like I said, this, this verse really got me. I had to stop and spend some time in prayer because it challenged me. Because when is the last time you got together with someone and studied scripture in such a way that Christ was the subject of our learning, he was also the teacher. And your only response was to be overwhelmed by the person of Christ himself as you studied his word. When is the last time you were overwhelmed that way?
when you realize as you read, you know him more and that knowledge drives you to your knees because you realize who he is and what he has done for you. And then as that knowledge seeps into our hardened hearts, it begins to take root and that's when transformation really happens, church. When the knowledge of Christ seeps into our hardened hearts. And that's really, I was just thinking about that, that's really one of the reasons we get together as a church. Sundays or Wednesdays or whenever we hang out with each other. That's what church is all about. Teachers who model him. We teach scriptures that speak of him. Services that center on him. Songs that are focused on him. A congregation that exalts him. And when I, the the I is lost in the we and the we is submitted to him alone. That's what church is all about. That's what church is all about. That's what we ought to experience every Sunday and every Wednesday and every time we do church together with one another. Christ is modeled. Christ is taught. Christ is exalted. Christ is focused. And I no longer exist, but we exist in submission to him and him alone. That's what church is all about. Honestly, ask yourself, when is the last time you were overwhelmed by the person of Christ? Experiencing him, seeing him, hearing him, and being taught by him. I know St. Saint, Saint Patrick gets a bad rap for what we associate St. Patrick's Day with, but he has one of the most beautiful prayers that I have prayed many times. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, and Christ in the ear that hears me. When is the last time Christ has been everything to you? Christ is everything. Is he really everything in your life? Honestly, church, as Christ begins to take over our lives, we can't help but take off the old and put on the new. It's just the truth. We can't wait to dress right. Because Christ is everything now. He is everything right now. Yes, it is a process. Yes, putting off the old self. In verse 23, he goes on and he says, To be made, verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former self to put off your old self, which is corrupted by deceitful desires. And then verse 23, to be made new in the attitude of your mind. Really talking about what? The renewal of our mind. We put off the old, we renew our minds. That's like the shower we have in between working and going out for a nice fancy dinner. That's the renewal of our mind. And as we renew our mind, we put on the new self, which is Christ himself. The old self comes off as our mind is renewed and the new self comes on as our mind is renewed. That's what comes in between them, the renewal of our 
mind. You don't renew your mind till you read his word. I don't know what we think we're going to get. How are we going to fight the old self and put on the new when we don't spend time in his word? The only thing that can really change the way we think, the attitude of our mind, changes the way we act. Nothing else. You can try and act differently, but if your attitude doesn't change and is not transformed and renewed by the word of God, your actions will never match up. Renew your mind. Renew your mind. You know how it starts really? It's when you read God's word, you realize that the old self is corrupt. I like to use the phrase powerfully deceitful. Deceitfully appealing. That's the old self. And I have to remind myself time and time again. And it's so easy to fall into the old self. It is never a one-time thing. Please, it's something we ought to do more and more every day. If we don't do it, we will slip into the old self. Of course, here, the whole idea of renewing our mind is uh, parallel to, we talked about this earlier, to Romans chapter 12. We're not conformed to the world anymore, the pattern of the world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. Renewal happens as we study God's word. As we study God's word. And please, like I said, remind yourself about that. Because let's be honest, the old self is not always extreme, you know, that we talk about. It's not always extreme. And as one pastor put it, and I, I, it resonated with me, we all have stuff in our closet that if our spouses try to throw away, it would start World War III. That's the old self sometimes. It's not always coming to you with two horns and a pitchfork. I don't know the number of times you probably rescued it from your wife's trash pile. It's old, but it's still comfortable, right? It's familiar. It fits so snug. It feels so good. I mean, these old beat-up jeans, these old stained shoes, a T-shirt with multiple holes, you can choose which ones to put your hand through, you know? <laughs> it's not always that bad, the old life, right? Those old sweatpants with stretchy strings that are held together by a string and nothing else. Like I said, the old self doesn't always come with horns and a red dude with a pitchfork. It's appealing. It's not always the crazy beast that comes and wrecks everything in your way. It's not always like that beast. But let me tell you the truth. Don't fool yourself. It still wrecks everything in its way. may seem small and insignificant, but in a moment of weakness, it's easy to fall back. To our old self. That's why we do it every single day. Remind ourselves to do it every single day because it's easy to settle for the familiar, fall into the com comfortable part. But the truth is this. That's not what Christ taught us about. That's what he's saying. That's not what we have learned. It's not what we talk about. Let our walk match our talk by the renewing of our mind and verse 24 it says put on the new self created to be man like God 
in true righteousness and holiness. We talked about it. The whole idea of righteousness isn't just, he's not going to use righteousness and holiness together. The whole idea of righteousness is about having a right relationship with God. Putting on that new self in a right relationship with God. True, and love the part, in the likeness of God with true righteousness. Not fake, not pretending in front of everybody else. It's easy to do that because we can easily deceive people. But true righteousness and holiness. It's just a reminder as we conclude, church. It is an everyday battle. It is an everyday battle. It's not a once in a lifetime, this putting off and putting on. It's an everyday battle. That's why Paul himself says, hey, what I don't want to do, I do. What I do want to do, I don't do. If he says that, man, how much more do we need to say that? Put off the old. Put on the new. But renewing your mind daily. Renewing your mind daily. As you renew your mind, the appeal of the new self overtakes the satisfaction the draw of the old self. It's just the truth. You have to be intentional about renewing your mind. That's the key. There's no better way of renewing your mind, like I said earlier, than meditating on His Word. There's no better way of renewing our minds. The old way is comfortable, but remember, like I said, it's deceitfully appealing. It's deceit. I'm going to end with this, what one commentator says. It's not always a beast. It may refer to, desires to the desire to acquire as well as the urge to use others for your own advantage. The urge to hurt people through backbiting and gossip. The lust for power and fame. The urge to criticize and blame others. The urge to indulge in self-pity or explode in anger or impatience. To react defensively. And the urge to be offended when things don't get your way. That's called being deceitfully appealing old self. We can easily fall into that. But he says, put off the old and put on the new. The new may look intimidating, but it's totally worth the price. It may look intimidating, but you have the greatest power ever known living in you. The power of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit as you put on the new, as you renew your mind. You have the Holy Spirit that empowers you, the Word of God that guides you, and a fellowship of people who will journey with you. So let's put off the old and put on the new. Bow your heads with me at this time. Thank you, Jesus. The challenge is simple. It's a challenge we all know. But it's something we do 
every day. We ought to do and remind ourselves time and time again. Because the old way, it's easy to slip into. That's not what we've been taught. That's not what we have learned when we came to know Christ. Church, we have experienced the cross. And now we put off the old and put on the new. It's a battle. We all stumble, we all fall. But we have the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that empowers us. As we read God's word, we renew our minds. Put off the old, put on the new. Live the life you ought to live in accordance to the calling that He has placed in your life. That's the challenge. It's not about falling down. We all will fall in one time or the other. It's about picking up, getting up, and keep going. So stand to our feet at this time.
This is not a call to living a perfect life. Don't put that burden on yourself. But it's a call to fight the fight, putting off the old and putting on the new. To watch the way we dress, watch what we wear, let our walk match the talk. Let our walk match what Christ has done for us. We are no longer slaves to sin because we have been bought by a price called to a high calling empowered with the Holy Spirit. encourage you with these last words. Do not settle for a, a form of Christianity that you find around. It's a form of godliness that denies the power, the real power. Because the real power brings transformation. The real power moves you from the old to the new. It's not settling for that's just who I am. I pray we will all be committed to daily putting off the old and put on the new. Renewing our minds as we grow in the knowledge of God that Christ truly will be everything and our all in all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Amen.